Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where normally we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, but once a month we cover a horror-adjacent movie, question mark? (laughs) My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing, Ben? I'm pretty good. I'm uh, looking forward to this episode. Uh, We are watching one of uh, our all-time favorite things. Yes, Uh, we will be watching Over the Garden Wall from 2014, which is technically a miniseries, but everyone watches it as a movie, so that's (laughs) why it counts. Well, it's it's 110 minutes long, so you can, like, watch it in one sitting. It is possible. Yeah, like the DVD says play all 10 episodes, (laughs) so you can watch it as a movie. Sure, yeah, 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 but it's not a movie. Um, it is, however, horror adjacent, which is more than I can say for some of the other picks Listen. on your November list. I Listen. do think it would have been hilarious to be talking about Rudy right now, but, uh, in a way, Rudy is always with us in our hearts, but I am not surprised that over the garden wall one given like our listeners, given that it is kind of the most horror adjacent of the things on the poll that you offered for November, which was basically like roughly fall themed not roughly it was entirely fall themed uh listener if you aren't sure what poll we are discussing um over on our patreon we have a monthly poll where people can vote for what they want us to cover um this month over the garden wall one in a um, landslide in a landslide i will admit that next month's poll is currently up and you know we'll see what wins out for that um but Today, we'll be talking about Over the Garden Wall. Yeah, so if you want to be a part of those polls, you can head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. So, yeah, Over the Garden Wall is an animated miniseries for children uh, <laughs> that originally aired in 2014. It's 10 episodes. Each episode is 11 minutes long. And I just want to kind of say off the top of this episode, because I know that we have, like, a reputation for, like, context setting, and we have a reputation for, like, really going in depth on things and like exploring them and like giving the backstory and like explaining the cultural references. So I I understand that that's kind of the reputation. And I, I, I bet a lot of people who voted for over the garden wall were like super excited to hear me talk about like Fleischer cartoons and like old postcards and like things. So I just kind of at the top of the show want to say that for the sake of a monthly bonus episode of this podcast which is otherwise not about over the garden wall it is sort of impossible to cover over the garden wall in as much depth as i would like to do over the garden wall properly it would need its own podcast with like one episode per episode like a 10 episode podcast Which, those do exist. I did a Google. I haven't listened to any of them, so I I can't recommend one. But there are podcasts like that out there. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I remember when the show was, like, new, there was, like, a Tumblr account that would go through each episode and, like, do a breakdown of, like, all the references and, like, show you, like, exact pieces of art that the show was referencing and things. Unfortunately, that was eight years ago, so I don't remember the name of that (laughs) Tumblr account. 
but yeah, we've been fans of Over the Garden Wall for a really long time. I think we watched it the year it came out. Yeah, my friend Morgan, who works in animation, um, showed it to me and a few other people in our friend group. And I was like, Ben, you have to watch this. Yeah, so you convinced me to give the first episode a shot. And I was like, yeah, this is great. And we basically like bought the show an episode at a time off of like the Microsoft, like off of what it was then like the Xbox video store and watched it. And I think we did watch it like over the course of a couple days, like two or three days, like just fitting them in when we could. Um, Originally the show aired over the course of a week, Monday to Friday, two episodes each night. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, we watched it that first year. And I think we actually watched it like more than once, maybe that first year. And then each year since, I think we've basically managed to watch it like every October ever since, usually in one sitting. Yeah, because it, it's just perfectly autumnal. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I really like about it is when you watch it, it goes kind of through the seasons, right? Like it's like the beginning of fall, school is starting. Mm. We get deeper into fall, snow starts falling. Right, And then right. suddenly we're in the midst of winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true, true. Yeah, and like Halloween sort of happens like towards the end but not right at the end yeah that's a really good point i'd never actually considered that oh okay (laughs) that's really cool um yeah this time when we watch it we're going to be showing it to a friend of ours who has never seen it which is always a good time Mm -hmm. we own the soundtrack yes shout out to mondo i (laughs) booked time like 10 minutes off in my work schedule so i could get the soundtrack when it was going to be released again yeah re-released yeah yeah because they only do a certain number of printings of this final soundtrack but yeah so you've kind of set up that like we're not going to be going into huge detail but what kind of context will we be giving sure so i think what makes the most sense is to kind of give context around the people who made the show and the production of the show itself and we can maybe touch upon a little bit the inspirations and references so the main person behind Over the Garden Wall is a guy named Patrick McHale. He created the show, and he was born in New Jersey in 1983 and graduated from the California Institute of the Arts, or CalArts, in 2006 with a uh, bachelor's degree in character animation. His first job after graduating was as a writer and storyboard artist for The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack on Cartoon Network from 2007 to 2008. While working on that show, he met Pendleton Ward and joined him in developing his short Adventure Time into a series for Cartoon Network. When that show was picked up, McHale worked as the show's creative director for seasons one and two from 2010 to 2013. And he continued to contribute to the show like on a part-time basis, basically, until season five. Mikhail first came up with the idea for Over the Garden Wall in 2004 while he was still at school. And in 2006, when he got out of school, he actually pitched the idea, uh, then called Tome of the Unknown, as a possible feature film for Cartoon Network, which at the time was kind of considering maybe going into feature film production. 
The original premise of Tome of the Unknown followed two brothers, Walter and Gregory, who sign a deal with a devil named Old Scratch and travel the land of in-between to track down pages of a book of forgotten stories. The original tone of the series was a little bit more like scary and like adventure story Mm. um, than what we eventually got. Cartoon Network decided that they maybe didn't want to go into feature film production after all. So they asked McHale to retool the idea as a series with a three season outline. Now, McHale thought that, you know, the storyline worked well for something episodic, but he had a really hard time basically getting the arc of the show to last three seasons. Like it was really hard for him to imagine pushing it out for that long. Um, And the project ended up being shelved anyway when he took on the role of creative director at Adventure Time. Then in 2011, McHale began developing Tome of the Unknown as a short for Cartoon Network's shorts development program, which was basically a program that the channel ran for creators to make shorts, obviously, but shorts that would also potentially serve as pilots for new shows. And specifically, these shorts would get shown to audiences so that Cartoon Network could like judge fan response as part of deciding whether they would go to series or not, rather than just it being a completely internal process. Unlike the other shorts produced by the program, which debuted online, McHale's Tome of the Unknown screened at film festivals. Designed as a pilot episode entitled Harvest Melody, it features the brothers Wirt and Gregory, along with a talking bluebird named Beatrice, traveling through a forest called The Unknown in search of the Tome of the Unknown, a book containing all things that have been forgotten. They meet a vegetable man named John Crops, who takes them to a gazebo party where shenanigans ensue. The short won several awards on the festival circuit, and Cartoon Network ordered it to series. When developing Tome of the Unknown into a series, McHale decided to drop the quest for the book plotline in favor of a simpler story about the two boys simply being lost in the unknown and looking to get home, which would allow for uh, a more looser episodic feel, allowing like a greater range of stories to be told. He wanted some episodes to be like scarier and some to just be goofier and mm-hmm. kind of that, that range of moods. With this change in the premise, the series title was changed to Over the Garden Wall. Although, in the final episode, uh, you can see in the epilogue one of the characters reading a book uh, called Tome of the Unknown. Initially, Mikhail envisioned it as an 18-episode series, uh, but it was cut down to 10 episodes for budget and time constraints. McHale and Cartoon Network agreed on the miniseries format, which was a first for the channel, as a way to deliver episodic-style storytelling at a higher quality level, due to it being like a more concentrated production, with Cartoon Network being able to promote the series as like a major programming event. So it sort of has the ability to have the structure of being episodic while having the like pizzazz of a feature film right exactly and that kind of feeling of like this is a one and done story like this is a single unit of thing but still episodic Uh, so as i mentioned it aired as two 11 minute episodes each day from monday to friday in 2014 the show's voice cast uh, retained the actors for 
Wirt and Greg from the Tome of the Unknown pilot, but the rest of the roles that managed to continue, which were basically just the narrator and Beatrice, were recast, and the show was filled out with many other notable celebrity voices, including, really, um, the voice of Wirt, who's a celebrity voice. Yeah, as Ben set up, Over the Garden Wall follows um, these two half-brothers and their pet frog as they wander through the unknown, the woods, meeting and joined by a bluebird named Beatrice and the reoccurring woodsman character and the beast following them through. There are many, many guest voice actors and celebrity voice actors, but just to start, let's begin with our main cast. Uh, Wirt is a gnome-costumed teen who is skilled at clarinet, and he is played by Mr. Frodo himself, Elijah Wood. Though Wood is best known, perhaps, with uh, the Lord of the Rings series, um, which came out between 2001 and 2003, Wood has been acting since he was seven years old. Uh, He was born on January 28, 1981 in Iowa. He started modeling at seven and being in elementary school plays. And when he was eight, his parents sold their store and Wood, his siblings, and his mom, notably not his dad, left for L.A. for his career. He was the lead in a made-for-TV movie called Child in the Night, uh, which his acting received a lot of praise. And his film debut came as a bit part in Back to the Future Part 2, which I only mentioned because Christopher Lloyd is here later. Sure. I feel like um, Elijah Wood, like, struck gold with those blue eyes that he has. Yes. They're just, like, really notable in the way that, like, (laughs) you know, if I'm a casting director and I was looking at, like, you know, a lineup of, like, 30, like, dumpy six-year-olds, I would be like, (laughs) oh, shit, look at the kid whose eyes look like he's seen too much. Let's get him. That's just Elijah Wood, Ben. That's what I mean. In 1992, he starred with Mel Gibson and Jimmy Lee Curtis in Forever Young, which I will note is only three years after that bit part in Back to the Future. Also, Elijah Wood himself is Forever Young. Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) Uh, In 1993, he starred in the Disney adaptation of Mark Twain's novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. He starred in Flipper in 1996, which I believe was my first exposure to him. And, you know, he had consistent work all through the 90s when he landed the role of Frodo Baggins for Lord of the Rings in 1999, filmed the series all as like one movie and then released over the next three or four years. Now, he avoided being typecast as Mr. Frodo um, because everyone fucking loved it. It was, mm-hmm. he, he was. Did he win an Oscar for being Frodo? I don't believe so, but uh, um, like the movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, like Return of the King won did. a ton of Oscars, yeah. Um, it's, a, he, it's a really great performance. Like, he is so key to those movies working. Absolutely. And he's only 20. Yeah. Um, which I think is key as well because it kind of shows. Anyways, this isn't about Lord of the Rings. Okay. He avoided being typecast by going into weird stuff after. Yes. Which is also uh, the route we've seen like his... Dan Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe and Robert Pattinson kind of went the same way. Just go into real weird shit. Uh, So, for example, 2004 saw him in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And 2005, he was in Sin City. Oh, God. He's so good in Sin City. Yeah. Like, not gonna lie. It's a lot. It's weird. That was, like, the first time where I was like, oh, man, Elijah Wood. Okay. 
But like that also, I think, shows that like, like, I think he really likes horror. He does. Though I don't know if I would call Sin City horror. No, but his role in it is, is like a horror villain. He also avoided typecasting by transitioning into voice acting. Now, his earliest voice roles began when he was 21 in 2002 with the direct-to-TV film Adventures of Tom Thumb and Thumbelina, in which he played Tom Thumb. And then he also was in uh, TV episodes of Franklin, King of the Hill, American Dad, Robot Chicken. Sure. In 2006, he played uh, Spyro in a trilogy of series, the Legend of Spyro series. And, of course, in 2006, he, got, he had another major lead film role in Happy Feet. Oh, yeah. You forgot about Happy Feet? I forgot he was in Happy He's Feet. He's the lead dude. Yeah. Okay. He also voice acted in the, uh, as the title character in the 2009 movie Nine. And in the 2010s or so, he kind of switched to doing some other things. Namely, being a producer and also getting into DJing. <laughs> Um, Wonderful. Yeah, he started DJing. He's in a group called Wooden Wisdom with his friend Zach Cowie. Um, Apparently he's like really good. As a film producer, a lot of that kind of came through this project he did, this studio that he formed with his friends Daniel Noah and Josh Waller called The Woodshed, which in 2013 changed its name to Spectre Vision. And they specifically produce horror films. Um, they've produced uh, 2014's A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, hmm. 2018's Mandy, and 2019's hmm. Color Out of Space. Oh, okay. I didn't know that was Elijah Wood's company. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, he's done many others, uh, but those were the ones that I was like, oh, Ben will really like this. Yeah. Everyone loves Mandy. Uh, I like Color Out of Space better. Now, he does still do feature films he does still do acting he's not just a sit at the desk kind of producer and it's always going to be about having fun on some not necessarily good movies like 2012's maniac uh which was also a horror movie and 2015's the last witch hunter Mm -hmm. in 2013 he voiced wirt in tome of the unknown and then returned for the miniseries over the garden wall Uh, Currently, he is still producing movies, voicing video games like Psychonauts 2, and having many TV and web series cameos. I really want him and Daniel Radcliffe to be in something together. Absolutely. Yeah. Playing Wirt's half-brother Greg is Colin Dean. He was born January 8th, 2005, and so he was eight years old when he was cast in Tome of the Unknown. Now, when he was cast, he had minor voice acting credits, such as additional voices, (laughs) though he did appear on the Funny or Die web series, Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis Debate Children. (laughs) Now, Dean got his foot in the door at Cartoon Network with Tome of the Unknown um, and did uh, voices for Adventure Time, notably as Tiffany. Yeah. Yeah. Which is hilarious because totally different from Greg. Very different type of character, but uh, that's great. That's great. I love that he's also Tiffany. He returned as Greg for the miniseries and then would continue voice acting such as in 2015's Halo, The Fall of Reach. He was the lead in the series The Loud House from 2016 to 2018. Good for him. And has done some feature film like in 2015's Krampus and 2017's House Shark. He is currently 17. I guess it's just, it's just like, it makes sense that he's 17. 
mm-hmm. but it's also just kind of weird to think about. Yeah, so he's like nine, nine or ten. Yeah, yeah. When we hear him in over the garden wall. Yeah. Which must be a trip for him going back and hearing himself. Yeah. Especially because like he's also playing a character, so who knows how he's kind of adjusting his voice at the time. For sure, for sure. Playing the pet frog eventually named Jason Funderburger is Jack Jones, American singer and songwriter. Born John Allen Jones in 1938 on January 14th, so another January baby, he studied drama and singing uh, and began working with his professional singer father, Alan Jones, to get his big break. His first big solo hit was 1961's Lollipops and Roses, for which he won a Grammy for the uh, Best Pop Male Performance. Roses and lollipops and lollipops and roses And his genre was typically more like jazz, ballad, and big band, rather than the um, typical kind of 60s popular sound. In 1964, he won another Grammy for his song, Wives and Lovers. Hey, little girl, comb your hair, fix your makeup, soon he will open the door. Don't think because there's a ring on your finger. You need try anymore For wives should always be lovers too In the 70s, he transitioned into more folk rock, which you can hear in his big hit of that time, Let Me Be The One. And in the 80s, his um, most popular theme was the Love Boat theme. Hmm. Love in the 2000s, Jack Jones transitioned into musical theater and continued touring as, you know, an artist in his own right and then also as part of the theater companies. He would do cameos on both film and TV with voice. For example, he was in Airplane 2 as Mm. himself. Um, He was in American Hustle in 2013 as himself. And in 2014, he was in Over the Garden Wall, notably as, yeah, the frog and as the narrator and the singing voice of the frog. Yeah, because, like, I feel like it's worth pointing out that the reason he's the frog is because the only time the frog speaks in diegesis is when he's singing that's also the narrator i know i know i'm yeah. but the narrator's kind of a non-diegetic voice right but he, the narrator we only hear when the frog is on screen yes ben. yes the, the, the frog is the narrator okay. agreed <laughs> because the frog is also singing at the start and end of the series but i just mean like within the diegesis the only time we see the frog speak is when he is singing mm-hmm. he's currently age 84 now, Beatrice the Bluebird is voiced by Melanie Linsky, the human. Uh, in Tome of the Unknown, Beatrice was voiced by Natasha Legro, but was recast for the miniseries. Linsky was born May 16th, 1977, breaking our January streak, and she was born in New Zealand. Oh. Her big break came in Peter Jackson's 1994 film Heavenly Creatures, 
when uh, the casting director came to her high school to see if any teens wanted to audition. <laughs> uh, she was 16, and she won the Best Actress Award at the New Zealand Film Awards. Wow. After university, she landed the lead in the 1997 film The Foreign Correspondent. Her third role ever was in 1998's Ever After as Cinderella's stepsister. Hmm. And then uh, in 1999, in But I'm a Cheerleader. Oh. She also starred in uh, Coyote Ugly in 2000. So um, a lot of other movies, but these are like the notable ones, like the names that really stood out to me. So she's like... She was like an indie darling, basically, around the turn of the millennium. Yes, and continues to be. Yeah. Uh, She had consistent work in indie films and in a TV miniseries titled Rose Red in 2002, which was written by Stephen King. And she's recognized by a lot of people from her regular work on Two and a Half Men. Um, She was a series regular from 2003 to 2005 and then was a recurring guest until 2015 when she had the honor of killing Charlie Sheen's character. (laughs) Now, she would do this sitcom to basically pay the bills while continuing to work on these typically lower budget indie films. Got it. And she would, you know, give interviews saying that basically she wouldn't be able to do one without the other because of like how regular the work and and paycheck was with the Mm. TV show. Mm Mm-hmm. Some of these independent films include 2006's Flags of Our Fathers, which was directed by Clint Eastwood, 2009's Away We Go and Up in the Air, and 2012's Perks of Being a Wallflower. In 2017, she starred with Elijah Wood in the Netflix film I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. (laughs) And most recently, she has seen much acclaim like just a shit ton of acclaim on the series yellow jackets since 2021 Hmm. um and the last thing i'll mention about melanie linsky is that she is married to jason ritter uh who played dipper in gravity falls right playing the woodsman is christopher lloyd we've talked a lot about christopher lloyd in our past horror adjacent episode on the adams right yeah 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 um but, uh, you know, I'll still run through things and then kind of focus a bit on his voice acting work. Fester Adams. So he was born on October 22nd in 1938 in Connecticut. He enjoyed acting in school and helped establish the high school theater company. He did acting classes in New York City at 19 and then got his stage debut in 1961 as an understudy. He saw consistent staged work through the next bit of time, but his film debut came in 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and kind of his big break for being recognized by, like, the average person came in um, the TV series Taxi Mm -hmm. as the ex-hippie cabbie, and this ran from 1978 to 1982, and he won two primetime Emmys for his role. Yeah, people loved Taxi. Some notable feature films include um, The Search for Spock in 84, (laughs) Clue and Back to the Future in 85. And I just want to point out that in Back to the Future, he is 47. Yes. Yes. He's in old age makeup in the modern day sections of that film. Yeah. People tend to forget that. In 1988, he was the villain in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Right. In 91, he was in The Addams Family. In 94, he was in The Page Master. Oh, yeah, The Page Master. And, of course, many other films through this period. He did voice work consistently through this period. His first 
animated feature was in 1990. It was DuckTales the movie. Huh. Then he was in 1997's Anastasia. In 1998's Animated Adventures of Tom Sawyer. In the 2002 Hey Arnold movie. Hmm. 2005's Here Comes Peter Cottontail. And 2008's Tale of Despero. He was also in the infamous 2012 Food Fight. Oh, yeah. And in 2014's Over the Garden Wall. Right. His most recent film work is uh, the 2022 film Spirit Halloween, <laughs> the movie. Amazing. Um, and most recently uh, with Michael J. Fox, they, together they helped design some Back to the Future merch collection, uh, which was announced in November 2022. So um, that's the most recent thing that he's been up to. Now our mysterious beast in Over the Garden Wall is played by Samuel Ramey, an opera-based singer born in 1942 in Kansas. I just love that they like cast they cast him for his like voice, his singing voice for the opera stuff, but he gives like such a good performance like overall. It's such a wonderful deep voice. Ugh. Yeah, he's known for that. Yeah. Um now, he discovered a love of music in high school and followed that into college at Kansas State University. Upon hearing vocalist Ezio Pinza, he was introduced to opera and just fell in love with the craft. He studied opera with performer Arthur Newman and then went on to join the North Carolina Grassroots Opera Company and went on to New York to try to make it big there. It's really hard to break onto the stage in New York at the best of times, but for opera, it's mm. particularly challenging. Yeah. So for a long time, he was just working as an ad copywriter to support him and his family until he got his big break in 1972 with his opera debut with Carmen and then the major role in Barber of Seville. With that, his career took off and it spanned three decades. His most performed role is as Mephistopheles in Faust with over 200 performances across over 20 productions damn yeah i'd like to see him as mephistopheles He is the most recorded operatic bass in history, and he had sold out tours through the 90s. At age 80, he's continuing to perform. He just loves the craft. Um, and he is notable in like his reviews as an opera singer, um, as someone who is an actor on stage for bringing that charisma to his characters and typically like villainous characters because of the the vocal range so yeah what you're noticing about his role in as the beast definitely is characteristic of what he does so those are who i would call like our main cast right we have many additional voices um such as john cleese as quincy endicott and adelaide tim curry as auntie whispers singer-songwriter chris isaac as enoch Singer and actress Shirley Jones as Beatrice's mother, jazz musician Jaron Blindboy Paxton as the Highwayman, and opera soprano Deborah Voigt as Queen of the Clouds. Hmm, that's kind of cool, cause like, well, the music is so integral to Over the Garden Wall, so I love seeing that they cast 
musicians for sure for these these roles even when it would be more than just like the split of like talking versus singing like these people play both parts but also like um towards the end of the series like the queen of the clouds and the beast kind of vie for um gregory's soul mm-hmm. and they're both opera singers so that's cool yeah so um with pat McHale serving as like the creator of the show you know executive producer, head writer, all of that kind of stuff, showrunner. In terms of the animation, uh, the show's supervising director uh, was an animator named Nate Cash, and he was born in Utah in 1976 and began his career on The Simpsons as a like character layout artist. He moved to Cartoon Network to work on Powerpuff Girls, and from 2006 to 2011, he was a writer and storyboard director on Nickelodeon's SpongeBob SquarePants, which is kind of his biggest like hit thing that he's worked on. After SpongeBob, he worked on Adventure Time from 2011 to 2014. He succeeded Pat McHale as creative director on Adventure Time. And then after Over the Garden Wall, he worked as a writer and storyboard artist on Star versus the Forces of Evil and as a producer on Thundercats Roar. He was also attached to the Bone animated film before Netflix canceled it. Mm. The show's aesthetic is largely informed by Americana before the Second World War. Washington Irving stories, old Walt Disney and Max Fleischer cartoons, vintage Halloween postcards, old children's book illustrations, and the landscape of New England in fall. The show's art director was Nick Cross, a Canadian animator who has worked for Nelvana, Nickelodeon, and Cartoon Network over his career. I think he got his start on Rupert. Oh, nice. Um, so very British Rupert. Yes, but, but very British, but animated by Nelvana in yes, Canada. Yeah. Since Over the Garden Wall, he served as art director on shows like Infinity Train and Craig of the Creek. The music of the show is similarly based on pre-1950 musical styles and was created by the nouveau folk band The Blasting Company. The show was highly acclaimed uh, upon release with a 94% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Those 6%, I'm going to come for them. (laughs) For many fans, watching the show in October has become kind of a yearly tradition And uh, the show won two Emmy Awards, uh, one for Outstanding Animated Program and another for uh, Outstanding Individual Achievement in Animation for the show's art director, Nick Cross. The show was adapted into a comic book series that ran for 20 issues plus two miniseries of five issues each plus a special plus three standalone graphic novels, which is pretty good for like... (laughs) A miniseries. Yeah, like a 10-episode miniseries that has kind of like a very one-and-done story, you know? The show's soundtrack, as Sarah mentioned, was released in a collector's edition from Mondo. Um, In addition to that collector's soundtrack, which, as Sarah mentioned, was put out in like a very limited edition on vinyl. You got to really be quick on the draw to get those. Um, But you can also get it like digitally much more easily. Also, Mondo put out, even in a smaller, like, I guess, print run, you could say, than the vinyl record, they released a cassette tape called Mm. For Sarah that's just, like, Elijah Wood doing, like, poetry over, like, classical music. 
clarinet. Yeah, and cla- yeah, clarinet, exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and the show's DVD release includes the original pilot, uh, creator commentaries, and a composer's cut where you can watch the show with just the visuals and music, uh, which sort of shows you again how important the music is to Over the Garden Wall. Aside from the DVD, the show is also available on iTunes, uh, the Microsoft Store, and Amazon Prime Video. Since Over the Garden Wall, Pat McHale has continued to contribute to shows like Adventure Time and Gravity Falls, and recently he co-wrote Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio and is currently writing the Redwall movie for Netflix. Yes. Yes, I'm so fucking excited, Ben, about the Redwall movie. Just... Sarah likes red walls. I can love red wall. Uh, yeah. So that's about all the preamble uh, I've got for you here, Sarah. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to watching this and of course showing our friends who haven't seen it before, uh, showing it to them. It's always a treat. So you're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss over the garden wall from 2014 created by Patrick McHale. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Over the Garden Wall, created by Pat McHale. As we explained before the interlude, Sarah and I have watched this many times. Uh, still still good, Sarah? Of course. <laughs> no, actually, upon second reflection, uh, uh, this, this sucks. Very problematic. <laughs> Two brothers sharing the same dream? That can't happen. <laughs> Yeah, Over the Garden Wall is good. Um, Just a wonderful, cozy fall time. You know, you just, you make yourself some... Apple cider. Yeah. Some pumpkin pie. You wrap yourself in a blanket in the dark and you turn on the old television set. Um, You let the darkness overtake you. Yes. So, like, you know, I've shown this to some friends. You've shown it to some friends. It was recommended to us by some friends. And all of our friends, for the most part, kind of vibe with our aesthetic. Mm-hmm. But like Over the Garden Wall is like a very heavily aesthetic show in some ways. And oh, yeah. I, the first note I have for post-watch is that I'm a slut for aesthetic. Yes. Hence why I like this this movie, this miniseries. Yes. And so I do wonder like what the response to this series would be from someone who like doesn't like autumn or halloween or like skeletons or ghost stories or like you know folksy folkloric autumnal vibes like if you're just someone who's like really really into i don't know like summer and apple computers and surfing and like elon musk like what do you (laughs) what do you think of this show you know because it's like it's so wrapped up in its aesthetic well here's what i'll say one, this miniseries is made for people who like the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And it's okay for something to not be made for everyone. Yes. And it's okay for things to not be for some people. Yes. Two, I think there's enough here in terms of the storytelling that 
a person who might not be a slut for aesthetic mm-hmm. like me would still probably get into it. I think they would they might have a harder time because the aesthetic definitely likes like sets the mood, brings you in. Right. Um but you know, if you're not actively hostile to something like that, like if uh, kid program nature of it kind of puts you off, so you might have a harder time coming in. Like we, we tried to show this to your parents and they just... They bounced off of it by the third episode. Because, which is like the most kid one. Yes, it's the most kidsy one. And and my dad just has a really low low tolerance for like really kidsy things. But I think if he had been able to stick it out, I think he would have enjoyed it by the end. Yes. But no shame if someone doesn't stick it out there's enough media out there that yeah. it doesn't have to be everything doesn't need to be for you exactly yeah i think that um definitely if you are already into the aesthetic your buy-in is you know easier right like if you have a nightmare before christmas t-shirt and you listen to like decemberists albums you know you'll probably vibe into this really easily yeah absolutely I remember the first time, like when you showed me the first episode and you were trying to like, be like, yeah, we should, we should watch this. The thing that got me to buy into it was that the first episode shows that the show is willing to be scary. Mm -hmm. Um, So like in the first episode, there is the wolf that has been mutated because it ate a black turtle and it's got like the big glowing rainbow eyes and it's black and it's like leaking oil and stuff. And there's that moment when like it just presses its face like too far into the barrel that Greg is hiding in and like is roaring like right into the camera. You have beautiful eyes. Yeah. (laughs) Greg like almost never gets scared basically through the whole show. Like he's got a very whimsical view of everything Uh, I think that's one of the closest times, but even then it's like, yeah, you have beautiful eyes, but like they were willing to push the scariness with that wolf right in the first episode. And they kind of like pull back on the show being that dark and scary for a while. Um, The second chapter is spooky, but ultimately it turns out everything's fine. But that willingness to be scary uh, right off the bat helped me really buy in to what the show was doing. Cause then it was like, okay, so it's got some teeth, the the wolf that is, um, (laughs) I don't think the beast has teeth. But with like the Pottsfielders uh, in the second chapter, uh, Lorna in, I think, chapter seven, that's the the girl with the evil spirit inside her. Um, and then, of course, with the beast as well. Who I, I actually think the beast is a really effectively scary villain. I really like the beast and I think he's really, really well designed and scary. That willingness to be scary is one of the things that got me into the show early on and sort of kept me watching because like hot take, I think it's good for children's media to be scary. Yeah. There was a, a, I believe a Twitter thread uh, as Twitter is on its last legs uh, about like talking about how scary a children's program should be. I think they were talking about movies in particular and yeah, they, there needs to be something that kind of spooks you a bit. It doesn't need to be the whole thing, Yeah. but even Dumbo has the pink elephants on parade that like it spooks you because there's just a lot going on. Kids like to be scared. Um, There's definitely like a line that you can cross, right? Cause there's definitely been cases of 
children's movies with like kids that left crying and stuff because it was just too much for the whole movie. But I do think that the moment when a kid's movie turns scary tends to be the moments that people remember and they talk about, like I, I meet people who talk about them adults like, Oh yeah, wasn't it fucked up in wizard of Oz when like it, it, the witch makes it, she, her think she's talking to Annie M, but it's really the witch and it's super scary. And like, wow, that's messed up to put in a kid's movie or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but that's the part of the movie you're talking about 30 years later. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I, I like kids media that's willing to push things. I think when you get too wrapped up in the idea of like, oh, we can't scare the kitties, you you end up with stuff that's like very safe and, and kind of bland and boring, right? And forgettable. Yeah. For me, so I really like autumn mm-hmm. as a season. Yes. I like, especially before it gets to like minus 15 or 20, because you have like cooler mornings, but then you can still like have a, a warmer kind of day. Mm. Um, and I don't feel like I'm going to burn to a crisp like in summer. Um, I like the change of the seasons. Uh, of course, you have Halloween, but there's also that melancholy mm-hmm. that comes in. And just as I'm a slut for aesthetic, I'm a slut for melancholy. Yes. Um, um, it's it's just a thing that's always been around me. Maybe it's uh, seasonal affective disorder. Maybe it's just st- standard depression. Uh, but fucking love that melancholy because <laughs> it gives me permission to be sad. Yeah, I think the part of the show that sort of admits to the melancholy, like tells you that's on purpose, right? There's a moment in the second episode where it's like right at the end and like they're leaving Pottsfield and as they're heading back into the woods, the camera follows this leaf that is blowing and then it gets caught in a fence and it's Mm -hmm. like billowing against the fence and the music is perfect and everything. And that right there says autumn and that right there says melancholy and that's when I had my buy-in with this series. Hmm. Yeah, there's um, a song in one of the later episodes, uh, like episode six or seven, uh, that, well, it, it contains the title of the show. So it's that moment in the series when you can go, that's the name of the show. It's uh, when the frog is singing. Yes. And there's a line in that song. Uh, Content to be slightly forlorn. Yes. Which stood out to me the first time we watched it and kind of for me became like part of the ethos of the show of like saying basically yeah like it's okay for things to make you feel melancholy like it's okay to be a little bit sad like it's you know that's okay right and that's kind of what autumn is and and you know there's there's things that are sad and bitter and melancholy but like in a way that's comforting. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. That's, that's the part that always kind of stands out for me there. Um, I've noticed that like, we're not doing, we just dived right in without doing plot summary. Do you, should we do plot summary or? or? Yeah. No, I have it all prepared. Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry, Sarah. So when we start Bert and Greg are walking through the woods, they are not quite sure how they started here, but they know like, okay, well, I guess we're walking home the same way where you kind of rationalize in a dream. They meet a woodsman who is chopping Edelwood for oil. Basically, the idea is that like he takes it, he crunches it down in a mill, and then he gets oil from it to keep his lantern lit. He's a little weird. They have um, a bit of a scary time with him, but that's kind of setting up Woodsman as a character. 
They meet Beatrice the bluebird um, by rescuing her from this like rose bush. And she's like, oh, yeah, now I have to like grant you a favor, basically. And she says that she'll take them to Adelaide, the good woman of the forest, um, and she'll help you get your way home. So now we have a bit of a direction going with the story. They make their way to Pottsfield to try to ask for directions and stuff. And it's very much set in the style and aesthetic of the old postcards Ben was talking about. Um, They continue on. They get to a a school that's for animals, um, where all these animals are dressed up in old-timey Road to Avonlea-style clothing, um, supposed to be going to school, not to mention that gorilla that's on the loose. Uh, And this is also the episode where we get to see a lot of Greg's personality and his song that turns into basically his theme called Potatoes and Molasses. Uh, the theme of which is like, everything can be nice and fine and, you know, just add some molasses to your potatoes and things will go down better. After the school, um, they make their way to a tavern where everyone has kind of a spooky song. Um, and this is when we get to see a bit more of Wirt because people are like, well, who are you? That's the baker. That's the highwayman. Who are you? And Wirt has to kind of figure out, like, then who am I? Um, kind of settling upon the identity of a pilgrim uh, traveling to a place. This is also the episode that we get a little bit more backstory about the beast. Wirt mentions the beast at the tavern, and um, the tavern folk say that, well, the beast out there, he is trying to, like, take your morale away and then you'll get turned into Edelwood trees um, which will feed his lantern and Wirt is like but the woodsman had the lantern so now he's very suspicious of the woodsman later in that episode we also see the woodsman and beast interacting this is the first time we're seeing the beast and the woodsman shares how like he didn't know that this is where the like how Edelwood trees were made. He is frantically trying to find some oil to keep the lantern lit because he believes his daughter's soul is in there. And he's also vying for control over the lantern from the beast. The beast keeps trying to take it back. Next episode is uh, when we meet uh, Quincy Endicott, a wealthy old man, and um, Beatrice is basically trying to steal money from him because they need two pennies for the ferry. This episode and the previ- previous episode, we also meet Fred, the talking horse. But in this episode with Quincy Endicott, we get a bit more of Beatrice's backstory. Namely, she was a human. She threw a rock at a bluebird and it cursed her and her family to become bluebirds. We learn a bit more about Wirt, namely that he plays clarinet and has a big crush on a girl named Sarah. The next episode, uh, we are on a ferry and it happens to be a ferry for frogs. Um, Greg is a little worried because their pet frog, currently named George Washington, is naked, whereas everyone else is wearing clothing. Through some shenanigans, uh, we learn that the frog can sing and is actually such a good singer that he gets to sign a record contract. So when our boys leave the frogs, the frog stays behind. Um, And Greg's a little sad about that. It's kind of the first time that we see him lose hope a little bit. Um, Now, the boys are following... Beatrice to go see Adelaide. Uh, Beatrice is in this episode is showing that she's a little like hesitant now about making their way to Adelaide. And we learn why, because Beatrice goes to see Adelaide and says that the deal is off. Adelaide is a kind of an evil witch character who wants a child servant and was going to give a pair of scissors to Beatrice to snip the wings of her family and then they would become human again. Wirt and Greg come in and get 
stuck in the trap, um, they all managed to escape, but now Beatrice is no longer with them, and Wirt and Greg are on their own, purposefully leaving without Beatrice. Beatrice spends the remainder of the series trying to find them. We get the episode of the... Um, what I'll call the ringing of the bell, where Wirt uh, meets this girl named Lorna, who has an evil spirit inside of her. But that's all I'll say about that episode. Now, as we continue on, Wirt keeps losing hope. He He's just like, we're never going to get home. Like, this is useless. He's really bummed out because of what he sees as Beatrice's betrayal. And so Greg decides that he gets to be the leader. But he's eight years old, so he doesn't really know how. They go to sleep, and Greg dreams about Cloud City and hoping to learn to be a leader. In this dream, he saves Cloud City, and Queen of the Clouds is going to grant him a wish. And he's like, oh, well, I wish for Wirt and I to get home. And he realizes that Wirt has already lost too much hope. He's going to become an Edelwood tree. He is being lost to the beast. And so Greg says, well, I know what to do. I'll take Wirt's place instead, and I'll go with the beast, so Wirt will be safe. Uh, Wirt wakes up and can't find Greg. It's now fully winter, and he actually crashes through the ice, and um, he is rescued from the pond, and this is when we get a flashback to Halloween. It's in uh, what I'll say normal world um, before going over the garden wall, and this explains um, Wirt's gnome costume. It explains Greg's costume as an elephant. The whole Halloween night Wirt is trying to work up the confidence to give Sarah this, like, mixtape that he made. But he has a lot of anxiety about approaching her, about interacting with people. And he gets really frustrated with Greg, who has none of this anxiety, and is just like, oh, I'll just give this to Sarah for you. And in Wirt's point of view, keeps messing up his plans. All the teens go to the graveyard um, to do, you know, age-appropriate things. Uh, and as they try to, like, run away from a cop who comes by to stop them, uh, Wirt and Greg end up going over a garden wall in the graveyard. Um, this is when Wirt fully loses it with, like, Greg and really just um, lets out his frustration. And this is also when they find uh, the frog. Suddenly, a train comes by, and we see that the boys are tumbling down a hill and fall into a pond. We come back to where we left Wirt, he has been left on the doorstep of um, the Bluebird family, uh, and he meets Beatrice's mom, who um, just hopes that Beatrice will come home, and Wirt leaves to try to find Greg, and he has the frog with him. As he's searching, he runs into Beatrice, who shares that, like, no, I'm trying to find Greg, I'm trying to help you guys, um, and so together they try to find him, we see that Greg is with the Beast and is being given impossible tasks, but Greg, with his cheerful optimism, is kind of succeeding at them uh, with finding like um, a comb of honey with honeycomb and silver thread with a spider web on a stick. But his, you know, his tenacity is coming to an end. The Woodsman confronts the Beast um, about turning Greg into an Edelwood tree, and they have a fight, um, basically over the lantern. By the time Wirt and Beatrice arrive, Greg is fully turning into a tree, um, and they can't seem to rescue him. Um, the beast approaches Wirt and says, well, I could always put Greg's spirit into the lantern, and you could feed the lantern with the Edelwood trees and therefore keep him alive. Um, this is like a deal for you, since, you know, otherwise it's hopeless. 
And Wirt says, okay, wait, no, that's dumb. <laughs> I'm not spending my life wandering around the woods feeding this lantern. Why are you so obsessed with this lantern? It's almost as if your soul is in here. And the beast is like really spooked by <laughs> this confrontation. He's like, oh no, he's guessed my entire deal. Wirt gives the lantern back to the woodsman because it's his cross to bear. Uh, and Wirt manages to get Greg out of the tree and he Beatrice and the frog all leave. The woodsman and the beast continue their confrontation. And the beast says to the woodsman, well, you're not willing to take the chance that it's not your daughter's soul in there, are you? Like, you're not ready to go back to that empty house. And the woodsman blows out the lantern. Wirt gives Beatrice the scissors from Adelaide that he managed to keep with him so she can change her family back. And then Wirt and Greg uh, wake up on the shoreline and an ambulance comes get comes to get them, and they wake up fully in the hospital. Greg is fully telling these stories as if they really happened, uh, and Sarah tells Wirt that, like, yeah, I found this cassette, but I don't have a cassette player, so I guess we can listen to this together. And so it seems like all's well that ends well. Now, as uh, Greg is holding aloft his frog, who has just been named um, Jason Thunderburger, he's, like, holding him about, and um, earlier... The frog had eaten the bell that rings, and it glows when it rings. And as he's shaking him in the hospital, it is also glowing in his belly. So was it all a dream? And then we get some vignettes about uh, the people who we met in the unknown woods and showing them like what's happened after the boys met them. So Beatrice is with her family. Everyone's human again. The woodsman is at his home, and his daughter uh, is there, and everything is good. The end. So I know that that's like... <laughs> A bit of a whirlwind. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about, like, summarizing... Ten different episodes. Yes, which all have, like, their own stories and subplots and characters and so on. So, you know, it's a little bit different than summarizing a movie. Just go see the show if you haven't. And if you have seen the show, then, like, you know what we're talking about. Yeah. Is there anything that I missed that you really want to highlight? Like, something that was your favorite part that I didn't mention? Um, I guess I'll just mention that, like, the joke with the frog is that Greg is always changing the frog's name. Yes. Like all throughout the series. And they settle on Jason Funderburker at the end, which is the name of this guy who Wirt thinks is like, oh, this like cool guy who's really got his shit together, who's gonna come in and swoop Sarah from him. But when we actually like see him in the flashback episode, he's like just Hi, the worst. Sarah. Yeah, he's just the worst. And Jason Funderburger turns out to be like a perfect name for a frog. Um, and it's also the name that Wirt gives him rather than Greg. Mm, yes, that's right. Wirt gives him uh, the name. Um, Wirt's also like when they wake back up in reality, um, it's not, they don't just like wash onto the shore. Wirt like wakes up and swims and rescues Greg and them because Wirt's arc through the show is basically going from being someone who's just like so crippled by anxiety, he can't really just like make decisions and he blames Greg for everything. Like you mentioned that we see in the flashback episode, but that's even established like very early on when they first encounter the woodsman and fight the wolf and the mill gets destroyed. And where it's like, yeah, it's just my stupid brother. He's always getting us into trouble. And the woodsman's like, no, you're the elder child. He's your responsibility. Like you need to be the leader. 
Wirt basically has to learn that right over the course of the series um, and has to kind of learn that, you know, he's got to take care of things and overcome that anxiety to have the confidence to, you know, be the hero. Right. Because because mm-hmm. often like like Greg has that confidence just because he's a child, like he has the confidence of just like not understanding consequences to actions. Yeah, like, and also just a a child who isn't going to worry about what other people think. Yeah. Like, the kind of confidence you see an average eight-year-old having. Right, exactly. I do think, like, it's really funny when Greg gives himself over to the Beast because he's almost like the perfect foil to the Beast because the Beast is like, have you brought me the golden comb? And Greg's like, yep. And he's like, this is a honeycomb. Like, (laughs) or like he wants him to capture the sun in a teacup. So Greg, like, sets it on top of a... A stump so that when the sun sets it will set into the teacup and things like this just the right level of whimsy to foil the beast right yeah the first time that i watched this i remember feeling a little frustrated at the schoolhouse episode mm. the third episode because it, it's like what are we doing here like the cool animals i guess but like why are we here right but you need that episode in order to establish who greg is and also to establish the heartbreak when Greg is being turned to wood. Yeah, and and that episode also like gives you Greg's sort of outlook on life, which is very different from Wurtz, right? Like Greg's thing is why can't we just have fun? Yeah. Basically, like that's the potatoes and molasses thing of like, yeah, just like, you know, put sugar on your boring food and then it'll taste better. Like, why not? Yeah. You know, kind of thing. Whereas Wurtz point of view is very much uh established kind of in like the pots field a mm. little bit of just like oh god like everything's going to go terribly even when there hasn't really been any evidence to show that yeah and and even um the school episode kind of contrasts them because the the deal with Wirt in that episode is is Beatrice makes like an offhand comment about Wirt like having no willpower and just doing what everyone tells him so he sort of stubbornly you know leans into that yes um to frustrate her the vocal performances for the whole show are really excellent yeah the level of anxiety elijah wood is able to put into (laughs) words um particularly in the flashback episode when he sees sarah has the tape and he's just like no (laughs) it's so well done and so Wirt will sometimes go on these like poetic ramblings to himself of like, is the dove never to meet the sea for want of the mountain? Yeah. Whatever that like, dude, chill the fuck out. Yeah, but yeah. he does it so sincerely. Yes. It's really well done. I think Christopher Lloyd gives a really good performance as the woodsman because he just like really sells it. He really sells the woodsman character as this like person who exists in the unknown. And I think that like grounds a lot of things because he's the first person you run into. Right. And he doesn't play the woodsman like a cartoon character, but he understands as well that he is a folklore character. Like the woodsman is not a psychologically complete person. He's the kind of character you run into in like a fairy tale. And Christopher Lloyd understands that really well, how to perform that character and have you buy into him when like, you know, the woodsman's been at this for years, apparently, 
without realizing that like it's the beast's soul in the lantern, not his daughter's. He can't go back to that empty house because he can't stand being alone. So he doesn't know that his daughter is just like there mm-hmm. at the house. And so he chooses to be alone in the woods. Right. You know? I, I completely agree. And how, how he could be conceived as one note, Christopher Lloyd still brings a lot of like emotion to the performance yes. of like when he realizes that the Edelwood trees are made of children or like lost souls. Yes. I think that um, it's the difference between a folkloric character and a cartoon character because the woodsman is this folklore character. And so Christopher Lloyd like grounds him, you know, he's a person who exists, even though he doesn't like, he exists to serve a role in a story. Whereas for example, like at the tavern, we meet all these characters who are basically like Chaucerian archetypes and they're cartoon characters. Like they don't have any defining feature to them other than their profession and tavern keeper. Yes. And Taylor. Yes. The other voice actors are uniformly great. We talked already about how great the beast is mm-hmm. um, with his voice. I just, I just love his voice. I love the beast's design, which reminds me a lot of um, this indie platformer game for Xbox that years ago now, like maybe 2006, 2007, that was really, really took the world by storm for a brief amount of time. Limbo. Oh, yeah. Where you're like this... It's black and white. It's black and white, and the characters are like black silhouettes against like a gray, misty background. And ultimately, the way we see the beast is he's always just like in the dark, in the shadows. He seems to be almost like made of shadows. He's just this dark silhouette with these glowing eyes. Until there is a split moment at the end of the show when the lantern gets shone on him, and you have to like freeze frame to really see what's... uh, what's up there. Um, he almost looks made of the Adelwood trees, which have like screaming faces in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the design of the beast, I think the design of all of the characters we meet is really neat. Like Adelaide having her own like thing about like the yarn Mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, and you were telling me how her design is based off of, uh, one of the witches in like the original wizard of Oz books um part and that's partly why she like melts from the night air but in her dialogue she says she's tied to the beast and like hears his whispers and his calls so it's really interesting how there's like mythology that is hinted at but we're not going to actually get glimpses like full glimpses of yeah everything's very interconnected in a way that i think appeals to um like the internet fan of a show like this right and i really like the twist, even though you, you can kind of see it coming, but the twist of Lorna mm. being like possessed by this thing that will eat the boys uh, versus uh, Auntie Whispers. Um, because you think, oh, Auntie Whispers with that kind of name, with the look of her, the way she like slurps down a turtle, everything about her screams like, oh, this is going to be the bad character. She's voiced by Tim Curry for fuck's sake. Like <laughs> it's going to be a bad time. But it's actually like she's just trying to do her best in like taking care of Lorna. Yeah, I don't know. There's complexity here that's more than just like, like, you know how a folktale will seem simple and Mm -hmm. then you dig into it and it's like you uncover the root system. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's how this feels. Yeah, absolutely. All of the character designs really feed off of the, you know, aesthetic of the show in one way or another and kind of the roots that the show has. Um, aesthetically, whether it's that kind of, you know, 
sort of sylvan folklore of the woods kind of stuff or or just the americana or what have you so speaking of like the the deeper meanings and things right like so the show has a lot of running themes um anxiety right fear depression depression loss of hope um grief grief death uh all run through the various stories um and i think you know the show ends up kind of saying like you know it's okay to be sad it's okay to have grief but you can't let it consume you um the show also sometimes shows really effectively that the stuff that you're grieving over like maybe you're making a mountain out of a molehill Mm. the flashback episode does a really great job with that where we're at halloween with the boys right yeah and also how like (laughs) this is going to sound so dark but um there is joy in death Mm. in the sense of like there is joy in something ending it's okay for things to end and i'm thinking of the Pottsfield episode in particular because it's like people have died and then their skeletons get reborn and they get to wear vegetables right so like the Pottsfield (laughs) the Pottsfield episode is really the first episode that brings in the death theme because the idea here is that Pottsfield is a potter's field Uh, which is an old-timey word for um, a a cemetery. And so they meet all these people dressed in vegetables with pumpkin heads, and they think they're like vegetable people at first, which is kind of a funny reference to the pilot, um, Tome of the Unknown, which had vegetable people. But it turns out they're all skeletons, like you said. And that kind of introduces us to this idea that continues through the series that the unknown is a liminal space between life and death. Yeah. And I also like how, you know, the question of, well, what is the unknown um, is not cut and dry. Right. Because it's not death, though it sort of is. It's not a dream or a fantasy location, though it sort of is. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there are like names like Quincy, for example, or um, Bill, who the school teacher is like fawning over. Um, Those names are dropped in the flashback. So it's like, oh, you hear a name and then you dream about it later. Um, There's no set answer. It's all, as you said, liminal. Yeah. And, you know, you pointed out the thing about the frog where the frog still has the bell inside him. So it's like, oh, was it real? You know, and I think the fact that we actually cut back to the unknown to see the effect the boys had on it after they've gone back to reality, I think shows that within the text of the story, the unknown has its own reality, right? Because otherwise, like like dreams don't keep going after you've woken up, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the idea that it's this liminal space between life and death is shown by the fact that like the beast's goal is to collect lost souls that don't find their way to wherever they're supposed to be. And, you know, the fact that the boys aren't supposed to be there, um, like everyone notices that like yeah. about them right away. Yeah, wherever the they show up. folks are like, aren't you a little early? Cause they still have skin and stuff. Yes. Or like when they go to the tavern and everyone spots right away that they're like, not one supposed of them to be here. Yes, exactly. What I did want to say about, the flashback episode is you, you mentioned that like some of the names come up uh, in background conversation. I do like, however, that they don't go like full wizard of Oz yes. with it, with parallelism. It's not like, Oh, the woodsman's their next door neighbor. And like Beatrice is like the, the girl at the football field or whatever. Like, I like that 
that's kept separate enough that again, the unknown has its own reality. It's not just supposed to be some sort of dream reflection, right? Yeah. I think um, out of the 10 episodes, my favorites are probably the Huskin Bee with Pottsfield mm-hmm. or the Frog Fairy. Okay, yeah. Because I, I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people would be like, well, what do you mean you don't like the the one with uh, Quincy, the mad love with like the giant? Right. Because it, it's very um, gothic. Yes. Like the giant house and it turns out he's so, he thinks he saw a ghost and he's in love with the ghost or is he mad? Uh, and it just turns out that he and a fellow like T billionaire their houses grew so big that they're actually adjoined mm-hmm. um and so that they actually love each other but they thought each other was a ghost but i do enjoy that episode but if i had to pick my favorite it would probably be huskin b yeah i think if you're in over the garden wall for the autumnal vibes um chapter two is you know chef's kiss like the episode for that really like there's um an image of one of the Pottsfielders in his pumpkin get up like standing atop a hill like holding like a a, like a spear or something as the wind is blowing and he's kind of watching the kids do their community service and like i could just have that image like as a desktop background you talked a little before about like how school town follies is kind of a uh hit or miss episode right i think it's a great episode if you are familiar with the things they are spoofing in that episode, right? Like old, yeah, like the, the gorilla on the loose, the, right? The gorilla <laughs> on the loose, um, which, you know, after watching all of those eight movies. Yeah. We were very much in, you know, the right headspace for, I think also the, uh, those kids, uh, the, our gang, our gang. Yeah, yeah. The, the like little rascals comedy shorts, old like melodramas that are about you're like oh you know my lost love yeah i will say that that episode you know even in its own way ties into the theme of like making your grief too big in your own mind because the school teacher has just this super melodramatic like you know thing about how she was in love with jimmy and he's he left her and she's abandoned and he's a no good scoundrel and it turns out that like he went to work at the circus to get money for their wedding and then he got trapped in the gorilla suit for three days for three days yeah it's been three days yeah and um clearly he's just left her yes so yeah it even in its silly way ties in with those themes my favorite episodes, I really like chapter one, the old grist mill with the wolf. I really like um, Songs of the Dark Lantern, yeah. which is the episode at the tavern. It's this really great mix of the dark, spooky vibes with just some like really good comedy. And a lot of really neat animation uh, choices that are like calling back to like Minnie the Moocher style of animation yeah um the tavern keeper for instance is very much just based on betty boop uh right down to her voice and the highwayman is cab calloway in those old fleischer cartoons right down to the like weird spooky rotoscoped uh dance sequences um all the songs in that episode are so good but it's also just like got a lot of good bizarro humor yeah like you know, Fred the horse who through that whole episode you think is just a horse. And then at the very end is like, Oh, he could talk the whole time. Or I don't know. There's just, 
something about the way that the town, like the people in the tavern just kind of shout things yeah. at uh, Wirt, like when they think he's the lover, right? And it's like, sing us your love song. Like I just, oh, it's so good. <laughs> I agree. I think Mad Love is absolutely the weakest episode. It's still fun, mm-hmm. but it's also the episode that feels like it could be like a Gravity Falls episode or something. It feels like the least tied into the rest of the show. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's fine. John Cleese is Quincy Endicott. I actually like him better as Adelaide. Yeah. Um, I think as Endicott, he's just kind of doing the same, like goofy old British man stuff that we've seen him do a million times. Now you mentioned really liking Lullaby in Frogland, which yeah. is the fairy episode. The thing about that episode for me is that it feels like two episodes put together. Like for me, it's the biggest holdover, the biggest sign of like that 18 episode Mm. plan that they had to cut down to 10 because it's really weird that we get like half of that episode is shenanigans on the ferry with the frogs. But the back half of that episode is Adelaide. And it's really weird that we've spent all this time traveling to Adelaide And even though we spent a whole episode with Quincy Endicott in his big mansion, we get half an episode with Adelaide after all of that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, You know, ultimately, it doesn't hurt the show that much. Like, we don't need to spend that much time with Adelaide. But to me, it just feels like this was two episodes that got joined into one, isn't it? Right? And I also think that as evidenced by the way you kind of mostly skipped over it in your plot summary. Uh, The Lorna and Ringing of the Bell. Yeah, the Ringing of the Bell is one of the most like standalone episodes. But unlike Mad Love, which is very standalone, I think Ringing of the Bell works a lot better because it's fun and it's scary and it fits the spooky ghost vibes of the rest of the series. And I also just want to point out that, like, I think Tim Curry does a really great job as Auntie Whispers. he's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's one of his best vocal roles. Um, People love Tim Curry, and I don't want to, like, dissuade people from loving Tim Curry. Tim Curry is great. But I do think Tim Curry hit a point in his career where he stopped caring and just started, like, taking every job that was offered, kind of phoning it in just doing his like wacky Tim Curry voice, collecting his paycheck and calling it a day. And I think you've got wool over your eyes if you don't realize that. But with Auntie Whispers, like it doesn't sound like Tim Curry. Like it, it's not, you know, that typical Tim Curry voice. It's a yeah. totally different thing. And I think he does a really great job. Uh, just to hit up like some other high points uh, for me, Babes in the Woods, which is the episode with Cloud City. Uh, yeah, very it, good. Very good. So it also references old Fleischer cartoons like the uh, Tavern episode did. Also kind of Walt Disney. If you've seen cartoons from the 30s, that episode will make a lot more sense to you. Just the certain idiosyncrasies of not just the character designs, but things like... Oh, the, the circles, the spotlights. The irises. I love those. Yeah. Or the way that like... Greg will do something and we'll cut back to like the same shot of a crowd that is not really placed anywhere in the scene, like clapping for him and things like that. Um, right down to the fact that the color palette in that episode is the kind of Cinecolor red blue uh, palette that you'd see in like old screen gems cartoons from the thirties and forties. 
yeah, there's a lot you'll get out of this show if you are the kind of person who really dug Cuphead, there's probably a lot of overlap for you to check out Over the Garden Wall. Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that we had Over the Garden Wall, we had Cuphead, and uh, just this last Halloween, there were a ton of those old vintage-style Halloween decorations coming back Mm. um, to be purchased anew. Um, I don't think it's... A coincidence and I don't think it's tied to the same kind of like nostalgia thing of like well back in my day yeah because those people are if it's <laughs> if it's back if the 20s and 30s are back in your day you're not buying Halloween decorations <laughs> I mean if you are power to you mm. but uh yeah I think it's because that kind of aesthetic has come back into style a little bit yeah speaking of favorite episodes for me the final episode is always a really powerful watch. Yeah, it always gets me right in the heart when the beast says, are you ready to head back to that empty house? Or the woodsman's like line when he's like, she was never in the lantern, was she, beast? Like that moment of realization. And how the flickering changes. Earlier in the movie, it does look like a feminine figure, and now it's looking like a figure with um, the kind of antler look. Yes, that the beast has. The acting's really great throughout that. Um, one of my favorite acting moments in that whole episode is when Wirt gets like teed up for a badass line. Uh, and his voice cracks. Yeah, yeah, where the beast is like, um, you know, are you afraid of the dark or something like that? And Wirt's got the lantern, so he wants to like be like, are you? And blow it out, but he's like, are you? <clears throat> you know, and then has to do it again, which is really funny. The music is really incredible in that episode. The whole like medley that you go from the beast singing come wayward souls that then goes into the like rise tiny seed as um, Greg's being transformed into a tree to the like sad Latin version of potatoes and molasses that plays yes. as they find him. The editing throughout all of that is really well done the animation yeah the final episode really really works for me well i especially love the way that once you've seen the whole thing and especially once you start re-watching it you realize that there's all these vignettes at the start of the first episode that foreshadow things that happen throughout the show and then that all get addressed and tied up again in the epilogues at the end so everything that's set up gets paid off yeah, so it feels very bookended. Yes, very uh, cyclical. Cyclical is probably a better term for it than bookend because of that folkloric nature. Exactly. On this particular watch, I've gotten so used to listening to the soundtrack. Like we listen to the soundtrack even more than we watch the show because we can just throw it on in the background that it did surprise me like how some of the songs in the soundtrack are in the show for like 10 seconds. <laughs> That's how things are, man. I know. I know. It's just really funny because I can like I'm used to hearing the whole thing, Um, which is to say that if you love Over the Garden Wall, if you haven't listened to the soundtrack, like listen to the soundtrack because you're going to get full versions of all those great songs. And finally, if we're talking about reasons we love Over the Garden Wall and why we love watching it all the time, I think I should just sort of tee you up to talk about Greg and how immensely quotable he is. And that's a rock fact. (laughs) Sarah quotes Greg like throughout the year. 
I think I think And ain't that just the way? <laughs> I think you really vibe with Greg. Because the two inside me, there aren't two wolves. Right. It's two brothers. <laughs> Worked in Greg. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us on this horror adjacent bonus episode with Over the Garden Wall. And thank you so much to our patrons at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast for voting for this. Uh, if you would like to contribute your vote for December's bonus episode uh you can head on over to our patreon to cast your vote donors at any level are able to send in that vote and you can also get some extra bonus goodies at higher levels right now it's looking like nightmare before christmas will win out but ed wood is in second place so we will see what happens there yeah if you have sort of a dark horse horror adjacent tim burton movie that you want us to watch if you're a big mars attacks guy uh you'll want to head on over to that patreon to make sure that it gets the love and support that it needs to win that vote as for the regular program scream scene updates every wednesday on apple podcasts google podcasts soundcloud and spotify where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order And uh, if you like the show, you can leave us a rating or a review, subscribe to our RSS feed, or just tell a friend about the show. We will be back to our regularly scheduled programming next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!